calling of Amos. We all, each and every one of us, have a testimony. A testimony is one's short, succinct self-story. That's what a testimony is. Now, while each and every one of us has a testimony, it's important to note that we all have unique testimonies. Mine is not yours, and yours is not mine. However, there should be some common denominators in every testimony. I've got three things I'd like you to look at. They're going to come up on the screen. Number one, I was living my life. Number two, I met God in Jesus Christ. And then number three, now I'm here living for him. That's a testimony. I was there living my life. Then I met God in Jesus Christ. And now I'm here living for him. That's it. Testimonies are simple, to the point, and they never, listen to me, they never glorify the past or the sin that God saved us from. If you give your testimony and you wrap it up by saying, and then I met Jesus and then I stopped all that stuff, and it makes, it makes your past sound better than your present, you're doing it wrong. The testimony isn't to celebrate the redemption, but the Redeemer. Testimonies are about the loving kindness and redemption that God has for us in Christ. Testimonies are not about us. Well, this morning we're going to be introduced to a man who's going to share his testimony, his calling. And that man is the prophet Amos. So let's get to it. Our first point this morning is found in verses 1 through 9, and that first point is this, three warning signs. Three warning signs. How many? The scripture says this in verse 1 of chapter 7, this is what the Lord God showed me. You see that? This is a visual prophetic word given to Amos. This is what the Lord showed me. He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Jumping down to verse 4. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. Jumping down farther again, verse 7. This is what he showed me, right? So you get this idea. The third one has to do with the plumb line. You get this idea that the Lord is giving to Amos not a verbal word, if you will, but a visual word, a picture of what he anticipates doing to a sinful and rebellious people. As you already know, I teach exegetically, meaning that we not only go through books of the Bible, but as we go through books of the Bible, we go through chapters, we go through sections, we go through verses. We look at phrases, we look at words, so that you and I can discern what the author intended for his audience. That's exegesis. The prefix ex, meaning to take out. So when we do exegesis, we sit, as it were, at the foot of the word, and we read and study, go through this section, word by word, line by line, chapter by chapter, so that we can deduce what the author intended for his audience. A text doesn't mean what we think it means. 
A text only means what the author intended it to mean. Now today, what we see a lot of is what we would call eisegesis. This is the antithesis of exegesis. If exegesis is taking out the meaning from the text, then eisegesis is putting meaning into it. We don't do eisegesis. That's what liberals do. Eisegesis is when a liberal goes to a text and says, that couldn't possibly be what he means. I think what he means is this. No, that's not how it works. We don't put the words in the prophet's mouths. We read the words, regardless of how difficult they are, and we do our homework historically, grammatically, culturally, and then we say, this is what Amos was saying, and we draw application from that. Up to this point, as we have gone book by book, section by section, particularly in Amos, we don't know a whole lot about Amos. We know that he's a prophet and he's been performing God's word. We have seen so far the hear this word sections. You remember that? Hear this word, hear this word. And then of course we just wrapped up with the woe to you sections. Now we're coming to a new section beginning in chapter seven and it has to do with the warning signs. There are five, three of which we'll look at today. So the first one is this, the sign of locusts. As we're going through this book exegetically, not telling Amos what we think he should say or what we think he means, but rather doing the work and learning from him. Exegesis, as we take out of the text, what we learn, first of all, is that there is a sign, a warning sign, that has to do with locusts. This is in verses one, two, and three. Now, this may bring back some memories for those of you who are familiar with your Bible, because in the book of Exodus, There is a plague, the eighth plague, which has to do with locusts. In Amos chapter 7, we learn that it's the latter part of the season. It's what it says. When the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings, which seems to say that it was when everything was just coming out and blooming, and it was right after the time when the king took his taxes from the land. That's the king's mowings. He gets his part first. So after that, it looks like it's beautiful and plentiful. And here's the vision of God sending locusts upon those fields. For a horticultural people, this is a nightmare. After all that hard work and effort and patience to lose everything to insects. But Amos intercedes for the people. And in verse 3, it says that God relents concerning this judgment. It shall not be, says the Lord. At least not temporarily, or at least temporarily, excuse me. The second sign that we see is a sign of fire. This is in verses 4 through 6. Then, this is what God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep. This is a sign that is prevalent during destruction. Fire is known to be destructive. We know that. It's not something to be played with or toyed with. And here, it was eating up the land to such an extent that even the great deep was compromised. I think that's a reference to the wells that contained water. They could not combat the judgment by fire. 
Now, for people like you and me, people who get their milk from Publix and their vegetables from the produce section, right? I don't know when the last time was you milked a cow. You want water, you go to the refrigerator. It's different. You and I, we have everything within an arm's reach. But when you hear a judgment like this coming to you from God's prophet, when you rely upon nature, when you rely upon this harvest, when you rely upon these wells not to be dry, this is a scary reality. Do we rely on nature? Well, to a degree, yes. But in truth, we don't rely on nature. What this prophecy is telling us is that we really rely on the sovereign God of nature. And if the sovereign God of nature wants to judge us by way of the riches of the land, then he can do so. Thirdly, there is the sign of the plumb line. This is verses 7 through 9. If you've ever done any measuring or building, you know that a plumb line is held to test the vertical in relationship to the horizontal. Here God is saying, I'm swinging the plumb line and everything is going to be flush and flat. That's essentially what he's saying. He says the high places of Isaac, if you look at uh, verse 9, the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, even the king's line will end. He says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, that's the king of Israel at the time, with the sword. And I don't want you to miss what's said at the end of verse 8. You back up to verse 8, God says, I will never again pass by them. So three signs, locusts, fire, and now the plumb line which is essentially God saying, we're going to waste this land. I'm going to flatten this land. Obviously, through another agency, we know in the future, it's going to be Assyria that's going to come in and conquer Israel. It's not there yet, but they're moving toward it, and God is essentially saying this plumb line is a visual picture of what's going to happen, namely the destruction of Israel. In the midst of these three visual prophecies, God says, I will not pass over it again. You see, God is saying that the time has come for judgment, which means that on the one hand, God is patient and has endured the sins of his people, perhaps in part because of the intercession that has been made by the saints. An example would be Amos praying and God relenting. But now that time has passed. That's what God is saying. I will no longer pass over. This time when I visit, I will be stopping for judgment. Church, let's grasp this important, important word. While God can be and often is patient with us, while he is long-suffering and patient, and merciful on the one hand. On the other hand, God could execute justice at any given moment because he is holy and we are sinners living outside of his righteous expectations. Amen? The clock is totally his. It doesn't belong to us. Every time we sin and we aren't struck dead, it's another gift of grace and mercy. 
It's the Lord saying, I'm going to let you have this. And I'm going to give you some time to repent and get right with me. But at any moment, God can execute the judgment that he so decides. No one knows why God immediately judges some and allows others to live a long life. I'll give you one that's even more complicated. No one knows why a criminal might live a long life of crime that is hurtful to others, while a younger person might live their life in a very short period of time and die before one single major decision is made. We don't know the answers to this, but God is sovereign and he is in control. And what we cannot do is presume upon his mercy and presume upon his grace. Every day is a gift from God. And every day that gift is an opportunity for us, you and me, to be right with him through his son, Jesus Christ. This is part of what makes life precious and valuable and we can't take it for granted. The life that we have and the life that we live is a gift from God. And it can be exploited and it can be misused. But God in his patience and mercy so often gives us opportunities to make those wrongs right. But this much we do know, all is lost without Christ. Christ is the keeper of the clock, if you will. Christ is the one who says, Father, give them an opportunity by the preaching of your word to get right with you through me. And every day we live as a gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Those are the three warning signs that we see from God to Amos to the people of Israel. The second part that I want us to look at in Amos chapter 7 is found in verses 10 through 17. And that point this morning is this, the calling of Amos. We're going to finish with the calling of Amos this morning. Now, look again at the text, if you would, please, just so we have a good setting. Let's read it. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus says Amos, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from the land. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. So Amaziah answered, sorry, Amos answered Amaziah and said, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from, the, from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel, etc., etc." You know the rest. Now, our next point comes from this section of Scripture, verses 10 through 17, the second part of this chapter. We have all the characters in this section presented to us. We have Amaziah, we have Jeroboam, we have Amos. Amaziah, it says, was the priest at Bethel. Well, a little rewinding to an earlier part of Amos doesn't give Bethel much credit. I don't know if you remember the reference that we got to Bethel a little earlier, but it says in Amos chapter 4, verse 4, from God to the people of Israel, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. You know what transgression is. Transgression is sin. 
So he was saying, come to Bethel and transgress, and the context is their religious habits, their worship environments. This is God essentially saying to the people that they were nothing more than religious shells. Their religion wasn't genuine. It wasn't authentic. They were going through religious motions, but their heart was far from God. Not much of a compliment for Bethel. At least in part, it isn't much of a compliment to Amaziah's leadership either. Amen? If Amaziah was the teacher at Bethel, and Bethel was thought of as a religiously hollow place, doesn't say much of the people or Amaziah's leadership. We get the feeling from the words in verse 12 that he didn't appreciate Amos either, and he didn't appreciate the word of the Lord from Amos. It says, and Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, this is often what prophets were called in the Old Testament, seers, O seer, go, flee away from the land of Judah, eat bread somewhere else, go prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, because it's the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Church, nothing has changed in liberal theology. People want God, but they don't want to be godly. They want to be considered wise, but they don't want to possess the wisdom of God. They want to be spiritual, but they want to be spiritual without God the Holy Spirit. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. As liberal theology was then, so it is now. It was man-centered then, it's man-centered now, instead of Christ-centered as it ought to be. Its motivation is people rather than God. It's not creedal, it's motivational. It's not convictional, it's convenient. That's Amaziah. That's the picture we get of him and his leadership. The second character in this plot is Jeroboam. Of course, Jeroboam is the king of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 14, it says this, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. You probably remember that Samaria was the capital of Israel. So he's reigning from Samaria. He reigned, the Bible says, 41 years. And get this last line. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeroboam wasn't known as a godly king. Although there were some political successes during his reign, the book of 2 Kings seems to suggest that those political successes were ordained by God through Jeroboam out of mercy for Israel, not because Jeroboam was a godly king. God had compassion on his people, and he used even an ungodly king to do great things in a country full of his people. I'll leave that there for a minute for you to consider. The final verdict on Jeroboam as a king was this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Lastly, after Amaziah and Jeroboam, we have Amos. What do we know about him? Well, up to this point, we haven't learned anything really about Amos. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Amos, it says, These are the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. 
which is to say that this is Amos' book. This is Amos' prophecy. He was a shepherd, or at least among them, and he was from the town of Tekoa. But now we're going to get a little more detail on Amos. It only took seven chapters. Verse 14 says this. You can look at it with your eyes. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac, etc., etc. Friends, there's a couple of things that I want you to note here about prophets. Hopefully, when you walk away from this morning's message, you will have learned not only a few other things, but a few things about prophets. So, if you're ready, say amen. First, prophets aren't volunteers. Prophets aren't volunteers. There's churches all over our state, all over our country, indeed, all over the world, where the pastor has adopted the title prophet, but it was not given to him or her by God. Prophets are not volunteers. It doesn't matter if you want to be a prophet. What matters is if God has called you to be a prophet. Prophets are called, and prophets are authorized by God. They don't apply for the position. Amos is saying, I was minding my own business, I was doing my job, herding my flock, tending to the sycamore trees, and God came to me and said, I've got a prophecy for you to go preach. That's how it works. Prophets are not people who one day decide, you know what, prophets seem to get a little bit of attention. Prophets seem to be those characters that stand in front of people and and get to herald the word of the Lord. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and apply for the job. That's not how it works. We don't tell God we want to be a prophet. God says, you're going to be a prophet. One commentator offers this. He says, it was while Amos was about his everyday business. What kind of business? Everyday business that God commanded him to go and prophesy. He was not told to go to some prophet in order that he might learn certain mysterious knowledge, which would be of help in interpreting and delivering the oracles, he was told, rather, to prophesy. And this he did to the frustration of the priest, Amaziah. You see, church, people who do not submit to the word of the Lord always resent the preacher of the Lord. Let me say that again. People who don't submit to the word of the Lord always resent the preacher of the word of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Everybody likes the preachers that stand up and go, I've got an alliteration that's going to blow your mind away and leave and going, I'm going to conquer anything and everything because that's what the alliteration told me today. It doesn't really matter if your outline is alliteration or not. What matters is, is it pulled from the text or are we doing eisegesis? Somebody who was performing eisegesis might say, I don't know what your job is today, but God's calling you to prophesy, just like he called Amos. No, he's not. 
Hannah sang this morning about knocking down giants. Doesn't matter the size of the stone, God will make the giants fall, right? And we believe that, but can I tell you something? You're not David. And your problem with your boss at your job, it's not Goliath. That was a historical event that was recorded to help us understand what God did through David so that we could say, the battle is the Lord's. But every battle you come up against is not Goliath because it's not about you. We all want to be David. There's so many books. Just go to Amazon and put the, uh, the battle is God's or Goliath or something. And there's 150 Christian books that full, filled with fluff. Your marriage is Goliath. Your job is Goliath. Your prodigal kid is Goliath. Everybody's Goliath. And you're always David. That's not biblical. That's eisegesis. You're putting into the text and you leave going, doesn't matter what stone I pick up. God is gonna knock down my giant. If he wants to, he might be using that giant to bring out in you what he could not bring out without that struggle. You remember what it says in Samuel. They say, you're never gonna knock down that Philistine. And David said, the battle is the Lord's. In other words, I'm gonna throw a rock. Whatever happens, happens. We don't look at that process of thinking in David who trusted in the sovereign God no matter what the outcome was. Let's fast forward to Daniel. They do the same thing with Daniel. Doesn't matter what trial you're in. It's like being in an oven. God will send a witness to be with you in the oven. Maybe. What did, what did Daniel say? If it's the Lord's will to save us from your judgment, then he will save us. But if he doesn't want to save us, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're still not worshiping you. Because it's not you, man. If it's his will that I die in the fire, I will die in the fire. Why didn't Daniel go, well, where are my stones? Like the story of David, I'll just whip a stone. Because that's not his story. That's David's story. Church, I say all that as a way of an example so that we can read this text and realize that this is showing to us that we have to follow the example of Amos in obedience no matter what we're doing, but it is not saying that you're a prophet no matter what, so just stop what you're doing and go prophesy. This is unique to Amos. Remember what the testimonies are. Common denominators, but each and every one of them is unique. I was there doing this. I met God in Jesus Christ, and now I'm here doing that. Prophets are not volunteers. When we read through this text, it's not telling all of us to do what he did. It's telling us to follow the example. We can read that for sure but we are not to make someone else's story our own. Second thing I want you to note is this. Prophets are not volunteers, and prophets aren't originalists. In other words, they don't deliver a message of their own. They preach only God's word to them for the people. We see this in pictures with Isaiah, with Ezekiel, with Jeremiah, the major prophets as we refer to them. God's word is delivered to them 
and then they preach it. They don't make stuff up. They don't sit down with a book of quotations and a Bible in the other hand and go, what can I I get out of this for the people? No, God says, here is the word I want you to preach, and they go and preach it. That's how it works. They're not originalists. So Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. No prophecy. How many prophecies? None. No prophecy of Scripture comes by someone's own interpretation because no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke for God as they were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. You see, that's different. Famed Old Testament scholar E.J. Young wrote this, the prophets of Israel were not looked upon as a group of initiates who possessed secret or mysterious knowledge. They were regarded as men upon whom the call of God had come and who spoke the message which he gave to them. Amen? When it comes, listen to this, I want you to get this. You might want to write it down, and if you don't, that's okay too, but I'm going to go slow because sometimes I go fast and Claudette gets mad. You ready, baby? All right. When it comes to faithfulness, there is function and there is form. When it comes to faithfulness, there is function and there is form. Faithfulness must have function, but it doesn't always have the same form. In this case, we have Amaziah and Amos. We can construct a faith with no function, like Amos, or we can have a faith with function, like, sorry, I knew I was going to do it. You saw me there, right? Yeah, I blew it. Rewind. In this case, we have Amaziah and Amos, okay? Okay. We can construct a faith with no function like Amaziah. Or we can have a faith that does function like Amos. In fact, I want you to see something interesting here. It's almost like a paradox. Amaziah is in the ministry. He's a priest. But he's faithless, and he doesn't cherish God's word. So his faith has no function. Amos is a regular guy. He's not in the ministry. He works a regular job. He's a shepherd, and he maintains some trees for his dad. But his faith has function even if it might not be the form that we would expect. Did you get that? Faith must have function and form, while everyone who has faith must have a faith that functions, not every function will resemble the same form. This is important for you and I to get, guys. You see, church, real faith, always has a function. It always works for God's glory and the good of others, but its form can vary from person to person to person. 
I love what we see here in the story of Amos. Amaziah says, I'm a person of, the, of, of God. I'm a priest, and, and, and I'm the one that should be delivering the word, not you, and I don't like the word you're preaching anyway. And Amos says, I was minding my own business. God said, go, so I went. That's it. And we said, well, he's not, he, he, he's not, it doesn't say that he's a Levite. It doesn't say that he was a priest. It doesn't, well, none of, that's ma- none of that really matters because what we see with Amos is a faith that functions. And when faith functions from person to person, we see it result in different forms. So how is God calling you to be faithful to him? It's probably different from how he's calling me. So the form of my faith's function is going to be different from the form of your faith's function. But here's the question, church. Are you being faithful? It's not a question of whether or not you're in the ministry. That's not relevant. Amos just said it. I was tending the trees. God said, I need you to do this. Or excuse me, God doesn't need anything. He says, I want you to do this. And Amos says, I I went. God said, do it. I did it. In what way is God calling you to a new function or form in your faith? That, church, is what makes it testimony. Everyone has a testimony. Amos is not an exception. You are not an exception. You may not be an Old Testament prophet. Reading some of their biographies, we might say, thank you, God, that I'm not an Old Testament prophet. They had a hard line to walk. Amen? Nevertheless, the function of our faith may lead to a different form than theirs. But is our faith functioning? That's testimony. I was there doing this. I met God in Jesus Christ. Now I'm here witnessing to him. That's testimony. Is that where you're at?